Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crockcast Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, along with my co-host, Matt. Hey, nice to meet you. And today we're joined uh, by the director of the St. Augustine Alligator Park Zoological Farm, Mr. John Brugan. John, welcome to the show. Ah, thank you. So, John, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your background, how you got uh, into your career, and a little bit about St. Augustine in general? Uh, sure. So uh, I um, grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and so there's not a tremendous amount of herpetofauna there, but uh, even at age five, I was running around in the woods uh, picking up, you know, salamanders and snakes and lizards and things. And so um, I brought home a snake one day and my mom just kind of gently took it out of my hands and said, I don't know what that is. And I don't know if it can hurt you. So we're going to go get a book. And, <laughs> and then I had a book with all these different pictures of snakes of the world and everything. And so that, that just uh, kind of fueled the fire. Uh, so around that same time, age five or six, I told my parents I wanted to be a zookeeper and uh, I just kind of uh, stayed on that path. That was always my interest to work with animals for a career. Uh, so now uh, I'm at the St. Augustine Alligator Farm, which is uh, it's a it's an interesting place. It's been there since 1893, so over 126 years old. Uh, and probably for most herpers, it's it's commonly known as the place that has every species of crocodilian. Uh, and so that's been true for many years. Although in the last year or so, there's been two papers out that have split. Uh, both New Guinea croc and uh, the African slender snout croc, and we don't have one of each of those. So I would technically say there's 26 species uh, that are currently recognized in science, and we have 24 on display. Oh, nice. So is um, the your passion for reptiles from the beginning, is that what led you to go into zookeeping of um like a reptile park, a uh, crocodilian park, or is it? Um... Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, or or was there? Um, did were you ever wanting to do like a like a, a zoo with more different variety of species or whatever? Well, so I worked. Uh, my first zoo job was at Bush Gardens in Tampa, Florida. And I actually worked out on the veldt with a whole bunch of hoofstock and so forth. And I got my elephant experience at Bush Gardens. Uh, and then I worked at Lowry Park Zoo in Tampa, Florida. And uh, I worked starting there in the reptile department, but then moved over to their um, Florida mammal section. So I worked uh, with bison and cougars and fox squirrels and all sorts of things. Uh, and then I actually worked for Walt Disney World for about six years uh, while they were developing and building Animal Kingdom. And so during that time, I also started there in the reptile department. That's always been kind of my comfortable zone. Uh, but I did a lot of work. That was the, the place that I worked was before Animal Kingdom existed was a place called Discovery Island. And so that was a 12-acre park in the middle of Bay Lake out there at Disney. And, so, and it was... Uh, had a nice reptile collection, but it was primarily a bird collection. So I learned a lot about hornbills and flamingos and ibis and things like that while I was there. Uh, so all of that kind of gave me a, a pretty well-rounded background that I was able to move to the alligator farm as a as their general curator at the time. Uh, and I've been at the alligator farm now for uh, almost 23 years. So one thing I've noticed when listening to people like Ron Whitaker and um, some other people like that, that uh, of like a of like older generations of how they got into to zoos and stuff, it seemed to it seems from at least my perspective to have been easier back then, like of like Ron Whitaker who didn't have an undergraduate degree and was able to like start. How would you like suggest to someone wanting to get into you know working at a zoo or being a curator? or whatever, um, going about that. Cause I feel like, or maybe just describe the differences between like, um, how you went up and how you think it would, uh, someone starting nowadays would go through it. Yeah, I think it's an interesting, uh, issue. Um, I think, you know, m many years ago, if you wanted to get in the zoo field, that 
it wasn't that difficult. Um, and now, you know, my zoo, uh, it's generally we're looking at people that have a two or four year degree in wildlife management or a, a, a biology degree or zoology degree or something like that. Uh, but the trick is having the experience. So for me, it was the very first thing I did was just go to my local veterinarian and say, I just want to be here and volunteer and take care of animals and, and learn what I can learn from you. And, and he let me do that. And so that, even that may be more difficult these days, but you know, my mom would drop me off and I'd spend hours in there assisting in surgeries and, and taking care of animals and, and just having that basic animal background was very beneficial. Uh, and so now it is a very competitive field. Um, we look, we, I really like the Santa Fe community college has a zoo program there. And I really like that program. You know, it's people coming out of there getting a two or four year degree, but there's a zoo on campus and they get graded on how well they take care of animals in the zoo while they're doing their, their other schoolwork. So, uh, that makes them a pretty rounded keeper by the time they graduate from that program. That's actually really cool. So, uh, so uh, how would you say your past experience with uh, all different zoos and work you worked at and all the broad variety of species you worked with help with uh, your uh, current work at St. Augustine? Yeah, it certainly made me qualified for for a general keeper position because I had the, the bird mammal background in addition to what my passion has always been, which is the reptiles. Uh, and so, um, yeah, it's, it, uh, I, I enjoy the other animals. The, the alligator farm is known for having all these crocodilians, but it, it has this really impressive bird mammal collection. That's not huge. Uh, but it focuses on some some important and rare and endangered animals. Um, it's got the only breeding group of Cape Griffin vultures in the country, has the only breeding pair of red-knobbed hornbills in the country, has the only pair of white-crested hornbills in the country. You know, it's, it's things like that. Uh, probably the only breeding setup of Pesquets parrots right now in the country. So, you know, it's, it's a it's some niche work that, that allows our keepers to get involved in these, but what they're doing is important conservationally and, uh, and structurally with uh, populations in zoos. Is getting every species of uh, crocodilian um, at your park, was that something like a goal you guys were trying to achieve or is that something that kind of just uh, happened along the way? I think it really just kind of happened, and and it was around 1993, which was our 100-year anniversary, that they realized that they had almost every species, and and so for their 100-year anniversary, they they built Land of Crocodiles, which was an opportunity to display all the species, and so uh, they had we had a, a relationship with Arthur Jones, who's who's this uh, famous guy who created Nautilus weightlifting equipment. But he had a passion for animals as well. He had his own private elephants and uh, and several big crocodiles uh, in a private facility in Ocala, Florida. And he flew his own planes. He he flew jumbo jets and built his own giant runway in uh, in Ocala so he could fly his elephants in directly from Africa. Uh, and that runway still exists. That's where John Travolta lives now. Uh, and so um, so that's. Um, that's a, you know, a part of our history was, was, was knowing this gentleman and, and his passion. And so he had a few species that we didn't have, including New Guinea crocodiles at the time. And he was responsible for bringing us uh, Gomek, the, our large, largest saltwater crocodile that was uh, nearly 18 feet long and in the Guinness Book of World Records. So, um, so that kind of all with that relationship with him and the years of working with alligators and crocodiles kind of brought that whole thing to fruition. And so, you know, for us, it's nice to be able to say that we have all these species of crocodilians, but, but just having them as a, as a postage stamp collection isn't beneficial to conservation. And, and so, you know, in our years, we've gone from roadside attraction to uh, an accredited zoo with the association of zoos and aquariums. And now it, our conservation work is some of the most important stuff that we do. And, and so we 
we're capable of of showing off all these animals, but we're hoping that in the process we're educating people about the fact that there are so many different species and which ones are critically endangered. And in the process, then breeding some of these species and and even being able to put some of them back in the wild. So out of the current uh, crocodilian species you have, what do you say is the main target of your uh, conservation efforts? Well, so we've bred 17 out of the 24 species that we have. And so there's a, a couple that that are rare and endangered that we'd like to be reproducing. Uh, the Temistema, for example, is one that's just eluded us. And an elude a lot of zoos are, there are difficult species. Uh, the Indian Gharial we've bred, uh, and I think at the time we did it, probably the only zoo outside of the of India and Nepal. Uh, but we only produced one offspring and haven't repeated it. And so those are things that, you know, we want to get better at 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 the captive husbandry and figuring out what those what's so tricky about those animals when there are other species that just kind of breed like weeds. Uh, and and so we're not, you know, we're not in the business of producing too many alligators anymore that's not that that's a success story for endangered species and so we're, there's no need for those in the wild but we're focused more on you know chinese alligators have a need uh siamese crocodiles have a need and and so we're breeding these animals and then at the same time we have to work with uh the countries where we're going to put the animals back they're endangered for a reason so you if you if you make hundreds of them and then stick them back into the same situation that made them endangered in the first place, you're not succeeding. Uh, so you have to have these very involved partnerships with other, well, first of all, other zoos and and then other governments and, and people involved. And so, you know, we like to say we've put Chinese alligators back in the wild, but we didn't do that by ourselves. All of these zoos, all especially all the accredited zoos, work with these uh, small populations in our own zoos that that are all tied into a mega population, right? So the so a good example is Chinese alligators. We have a few pairs that that uh, we've reproduced over the years, and that's not going to solve the problem of endangered species for Chinese alligators. But when we put every zoo's Chinese alligators into a computerized stud book. And we're careful about not inbreeding, not accidentally crossing a, uh, an offspring back to its parents or something silly like that. Uh, then we can we can have a, a really good population that has promising genetic diversity that would make sense to go back to the wild. And so we do that with these these wonderful uh, state of the art stud book computers. So essentially, it works like every Chinese alligator is put into this stud book. And we asked the stud book to make the best breeding recommendations for the best genetics for the next 100 years. And so it might tell me, oh, well, you know what? Your female Chinese alligator needs to go breed with a male in Toledo. And we'll, you know, we switch animals around, make all the right pairings. Uh, as you know, they're temperature dependent for sex. So the stud book can even say, hey, we need four males and three females out of that pairing. And you can create that. And, and if everybody does it and everybody's successful, you'll have this really nice genetic population. That's incredible. What, so um, when you do these reintroductions, do you like uh, keep track of the, the alligators that you release in the wild and check up on them every so often? Or how does that work? Yeah. So, so back to the idea of the Chinese alligator, we worked with the government in China and they, they, um, they really stepped up. They they created a, a protected, it was a, basically an island. It was Chongming Island. They protected the habitat. They introduced food species that weren't there. They introduced crayfish and some, some fish and other amphibians and things and made the habitat right. And then they set up a perimeter with, with actual guards that were to protect this area. Um, and our our alligators from the U.S. Uh, paired with some of the existing captive Chinese alligators were released into this site, but we put radio transmitters on them. We worked with the Bronx Zoo's vet, and they, they helped us put radio transmitters on them. And then there was a couple grad students in China who would follow them around and report back what they were doing and if they reproduced and all that kind of thing. So it was a very involved project, but it was uh, it was a good partnership. Everybody was working together. So you mentioned that uh, the 
uh, Africans slender snouted and the New Guinea crocs were recently split into two different species each. Do you, can you elaborate further on that? Yeah, sure. So um, we kind of always knew that uh, Crocodilus Nova Guinea was going to be split. There's a, it's an island and there's a mountain range down the middle and there's some, mm -hmm. some of these freshwater crocs living in the north and some in the south. Uh, and so the whole population's been called Crocodilus Nova Guinea for as long as I've known about them. Uh, and just recently, uh, they were the, the somebody finally did the paper uh, and and split them into two. And so the northern New Guineas um, that will be uh, Crocodilus Hawley, which is named after a gentleman who did a lot of the research. Uh, uh, are here in the U.S. So essentially what we've been calling New Guinea is Hawleye in our collection. So we have the new species, but we don't have any of the, I'm sorry, that's the uh, southern one. We don't have any of the northern ones, uh, which are now. So so southern will be Crocodilus Hawleye and northern will be Crocodilus Nova Guinea. And there are no true Crocodilus Nova Guinea in the U.S. at this moment. And then the other one uh, is Mesostops. So Mesostops cataphractus uh, is what we've always known, or what, what you know, it used to be Crocodilus cataphractus, but these African slender snouts have, uh, have always been called this one species. And they've recently been divided in West Africa. The way the watersheds in West Africa is fascinating, and, it, and it's obvious that if animals are are there they're going to eventually start evolving in different directions because they don't ever find each other again once the once they're in one area there's they'd have to go up waterfalls and things to find each other and and start reproducing with the other populations and they don't do that so i think osteolamus will be several species actually when they're done with it but uh right now it's uh mesostops uh cataphractus and then the new one is mesostops leptorhynchus uh, but there are no uh, Leptorhynchus in the U.S. right now either. Do you have any, uh, you know, have any plans to get any of those two new species into the United States at all? You know, it'd be nice to continue to be able to say we have every species, but, but um, I think we're working. Certainly, in the case of Cataphractus, we're working with the more endangered animal, uh, and so it doesn't make a lot of sense to uh to mess you know to to, to bring leptorhynchus in and kind of mess with that the existing population of cataphractus uh if we did that zoos only have so much space and if we did that i think you'd be making space for leptorhynchus and probably eliminating space for some cataphractus and really we need the, we need the breeding populations of cataphractus to stay strong to maintain the population so from our perspective, yeah, it'd be a great thing to display them, but I don't think we'll spend a lot of time and effort trying to import animals that don't need the, the work. Going back into the conservation efforts, and maybe you guys don't deal as much in this side, but um, I'm actually curious. So what all goes in, into or, or is involved with um, when you deal with like the governments trying to make sure that when you reintroduce these animals that the areas that you're not reintroducing them to an area where they won't thrive like um what all go like specific kind of the specifics and stuff that gets involved with making sure that you're also putting them in a good area and that the original reason why they were you know uh endangered isn't gonna plague them well that that is is different in every country we work with so mm -hmm. You know, some of the populations of New Guinea crocodiles are thriving because uh, the government is paying these remote villages to protect nests and and raise crocodiles. And if they if they have a nest in their village that raises crocodiles, they get paid. The village gets paid per crocodile. And so they protect them in a way that that no one was going to do that before. Uh and then some of these bigger crocodilians that eat people, it's a real challenge to convince them that the crocodile should be there and, and they should have to uh, sacrifice, you know, being able to bathe in the water or, or wash their clothing uh, to have the crocodiles around. And so it's an investment uh, 
in 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 country to to go to these places and and create safe ways to get water and safe ways to wash clothes and things like that, uh, and still have the crocodiles in the environment. In some cases, conservation seems seems counterintuitive because uh, what we do in a lot of cases, it's worked with uh, saltwater crocodiles in Australia and American crocodiles in, in the States, and American alligators, I'm sorry, in the States, is we make them we make them valuable. And so if, if there's, you know, in the case of saltwater crocodiles, if their skin and meat are worth something, then people are willing to, to have them around, even though that's a giant crocodile that may eat someone. Uh, if the people are making a living, in fact, entire villages or entire people groups are making a living off of the crocodiles as a resource, uh, they'll make sure that there are more crocodiles for the future. And so that's, that's, that's not like a lot of people do conservation, right? Not many people who are in the conservation work are willing to say they, they actually eat those, the animals that they can serve. You know, we will eat American alligator meat and not think anything about it because that's part of the, that's part of conserving them is that there's a value people, farmers and ranchers and so forth are providing skins and meat. And as long as people are buying, then they're going to make sure that there are more of those animals out there. Yeah, and so you said obviously, you know, each country kind of has a different um, reason as to why maybe the animal isn't thriving. But would you say a large part in general is humans hunting them, or would you say it's habitat loss, or what would you say is the main reason that's affecting different crocodilians? Yeah, I think most of it you could probably pin down to habitat loss. I mean, the Chinese alligator is interesting in that it doesn't. The Chinese really don't eat it. They eat everything, every other reptile in the forest, but they don't. There are some people who eat Chinese alligator in some restaurants and specialize in it. But, but that the fact is, it's just it's just habitat. You know that they live in the best habitat to make rice paddies, and so um, mm-hmm. rice paddies are 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 terraced land. And a, one single Chinese alligator that wants to make a burrow in a rice paddy can drain it overnight. And so the farmers really don't want Chinese alligators around their rice paddies, even though they, they're not dangerous to their family and they're, they're probably not going to eat anything that they're farming. Uh, but they can uh, certainly mess up a farm very quickly with, with just their natural uh, behavior. Uh, so uh, there's there are many factors at play for all of these things and and uh some cases it's easier to to save a a cute looking crocodile a small thing that does that is kind of uh uh you know not it's not bothering anybody it's just out there and then you have these things like uh saltwater crocodiles or nile crocodiles that eat people and uh that's a that's a tough sell it's a it's a little bit like lions in africa that uh, if if your family's at risk, then they just assume those animals aren't there. How do you, um, uh, with the, like the Chinese alligators, how you're saying um, they can drain a rice paddy, how do you like incentivize people to uh, not kill them, essentially, or get rid of them? <laughs> yeah, well, so uh, in, that, in the cases that I know of where they were... Uh, uh, bothering rice paddies is the government actually came and collected them from those places and established what they felt like was better habitat and and moved them to a, to a place where somebody wasn't going to be farming. Uh, but the, you know, there's other side effects of just being human. That um, for for a number of years, the the number one killer of Chinese alligators was rat poison, and it was because the the Chinese had started using a new rat poison and it made the rats in their homes thirsty and they would go down to the water and die and the alligators would eat the rat. And so it was kind of this secondary poisoning and it was, and until they realized it, uh, um, they, they used a lot of this poison. So they've now in many cases changed the, what poison they're using on rats and, and getting back to, uh, that that being safe around it, these Chinese alligators, but you know those are surprises that sometimes you have no idea the consequences you didn't didn't really uh, think through when you're 
thinking about not wanting a rat to eat your food in your house. In your um, personal opinion, do you think that's a good like long-term solution to just uh, to like relocate the Chinese alligators out of the rice paddies into like a new area, or do you think um, there's a better way, or just what do you think on that? Well, you know, <laughs> I, it almost doesn't matter what I think because there's a different the, the Chinese are a different group of people, and in fact, it was really difficult to work with them in the beginning because the last thing they wanted was the, was Westerners coming over and wagging their finger at them and saying, Hey, you're, you're doing this wrong. These are an endangered yeah. species and you have to follow the way we've set it up. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and really it took, it took mm -hmm. um, a guy named John Thorpe Yarnison that, that had a good relationship with some of them, the um, officials in China to, to go over during the year of the dragon and say, Hey, look, you guys, you have this year of the dragon and you, and you kind of, you use the Chinese alligator as a symbol and your banners and, and on television and things. And, and, and you don't have a lot left and maybe we could be working together to, to, to solve that problem and make sure that the next year of the dragon, there's some Chinese alligators left and that, and, and as approaching them as a partnership rather than as a, uh, you know, an oversight, um, they responded a lot better about that. And, and so they, we, we actually at, at the time had been collecting money in the U S to, to, you know, to save the Chinese alligator. And we brought over a few thousand dollars at, in that same conversation and just said, look, we're concerned. And, and here's, we're putting our money where our mouth is. We'd just like to help. And that really said something to the government. And they, they then, turned around and invested a million dollars in this island that I was mentioning. And, wow. and that's been a success there. So um, they know how to farm the Chinese alligator. The, and the reason they needed us was that um, their genetics just weren't great. You know, they, they they had thousands of Chinese alligators, but they all started from a population of about eight animals. Uh, so we had better genetics uh, here in the U S and, and so that that helped with the partnership to be able to say, hey, we're breeding these and, and we know that the genetics are solid and, and we'll just provide them to you to do what what we think is best for introducing them into the wild. Uh, so I, I think sometimes we kind of roll into these countries and think, oh, we're going to teach them what to do. I, I, I had that feeling one of my first trips with the alligator farm is I went to um, uh, to Cuba. And, and for some reason, I, I'm sure I was naive. Uh, I thought, you know, we're going to go over to China and, and teach these guys how to, how to make more Chinese. I'm sorry, over to Cuba and teach these guys how to make more Cuban crocodiles. Uh, but I learned more than I certainly taught anybody when I was there. The, the Cubans in Cuba understand their population of Cuban crocodiles really well. They farm them in a couple different uh, impressive farms. Uh, and they're making a lot of Cuban crocodiles. They're having other issues that are hard to control, uh, but they have a handle on the biology and the and the genetics and so forth. And so, I, I think it's all partnership. The the crocodile specialist group is is has learned that over the years that we're we're meant to be partners. We're meant to just get in there and say, okay, we we all agree that this is a problem. How can we do it together? What made you get into more of the uh, the zoo aspect uh, as opposed to like like the field work of conservation? Uh, I think it was what was available to me at the time. I mean, uh, I don't think uh, you know when when I first was nagging Bush Gardens for a job, I don't, I I didn't know anything. Ex maybe nothing did exist for for reptile conservation in the wild. I mean, there was certainly wasn't. <laughs> Uh, the type of thing that where you said, oh, that, that's a job I'll go out and get. In fact, when I was in high school, I recall my parents were like, well, you're going to work with animals. You're, you're going to be a veterinarian. You know, that was that was kind of the path that they set for me. And my first uh, summer with at Bush Gardens, I realized uh, I worked with the vet and I didn't want to do what he did. The animals were afraid of him. Uh, they didn't they didn't particularly like him. And and I, I saw these people who worked with animals bring them to him and they seemed happy and the animals seemed happy with those people that were taking care of them. But 
uh, I wasn't thinking I wanted to go through eight more years of school. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, working as an animal keeper in a zoo kind of was, was what was before me. And I, and I liked the idea of it. So, uh, you mentioned that you had a Guinness world record crocodile in, uh, Gomek at St. Augustine. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about him and his personal history? Yeah, sure. So Gomek uh, was a 17 feet, nine and a half inch saltwater crocodile from Papua New Guinea. And um, he uh, was a known man eater. He lived in a river between two villages in New Guinea. And uh, a, this is an area that doesn't have roads. So these villages are trading and communicating by uh, the river. They, they canoe up river or down river to to uh do what they do their all their commerce and everything is is on the river and this crocodile realized that if he flipped over a simple dugout canoe he could eat whoever fell out of it and uh it was easy you know and crocodiles certainly go to whatever is easy for food uh so he would eat a person you know once a month or once every three months or whatever and that's how he made his living and he was terrorizing this village and so uh, a gentleman who's become a friend of ours now named George Craig uh, was a, a crocodile hunter, a real live, you know, kind of bring them back, collecting skins all through New Guinea, crocodile hunter. And he um, he heard about this big croc and he while he was making money killing crocodiles for their skins and meat, he also had a great appreciation for him. And when he heard about uh, this giant crocodile, he decided to capture it alive. And so he set a trap and uh, did just that. He caught that and actually many other big crocodiles. And uh, he brought them back to his place to display and uh, kind of created a, a, a situation where people would pay him to come see these big crocodiles. And he's still alive and he's in Australia still doing that. He, I think, he probably has the Guinness Book of World's Record for living crocodile in the world right now uh, in the form of a crocodile named Cassius that I think is every bit of 20 feet. He just happens to be missing part of his tail. Uh, so yeah. Gomek, uh, Gomek was uh, there um, being displayed. And then that, that gentleman I talked about earlier, Arthur Jones, uh, got interested in him. And so he bought Gomek from George and brought him into Ocala, into his personal collection, where he displayed uh, elephants and uh, had a, his own gorilla and uh, several other big, cool animals there. And it was just around that time in 1993 that we uh, were setting up for displaying all the animals that, um, that Arthur decided that he was going to start slimming down his collection. So he traded or sold us uh, a whole group of crocodiles, including Gomet. So, so I'm curious, um, we, you know, something that we've talked about a lot on this, on this uh, podcast is just cro how intelligent crocodilians are. And um, like you mentioned, Gomek was, he found it, easy to flip over these canoes and these people that was the main reason why he was doing that so when he was brought into these zoos and stuff did you uh, was there are you aware of like there was a problem with him wanting to eat humans or did that completely go away once there was a new like way of providing a food source or it, it completely went away and so to hear george we have some video of george on display uh, where Gomek is mounted. Gomek died in, uh, in March of 97. So he's mounted in our park and we have some video of George there talking about him. And as George describes it, he, he, that crocodile would eat out of his hands and never tried to attack mm -hmm. him in captivity. And he, and George says, you know, it just kind of worked out in his mind that he was going to get fed. And that was, uh, that was fine with him. And even in, when he was in our park, I've seen photos of people sitting on his tail for for uh, the photograph, and and he was just a very laid back crocodile, uh, and and that's that's partly 
because he worked out, he was getting his food, but it's also partly personality. You know, we have a, a 15 and a half foot saltwater crocodile now in that same pool. And he was born in captivity uh, in Australia in a farm. His name's Maximo. Uh, but he looks past the food when we're trying to feed him and would absolutely eat one of us. I don't have any doubt about it. So uh, he, he makes extra effort to uh, make sure that we're on our toes. It's really cool to just hear how, well, you know, pe people tend to think, especially with like reptiles, that they just, you know, it, it, it's bloodthirsty and it's, you know, it just wants to eat humans because it sees us as foods, but food, but it's, it's really like a, I guess you could think of it as like a business choice for them, you know, <laughs> like before it was, you know, it, it was something easy and convenient, but um, they actually think through that kind of stuff. They're not just like crazy maniacs or anything, you know, they're, they're intelligent creatures. Sure. I've listened to some of your other um, um, people that you've had as guests on your podcast, and I, and I agree. They're, they're very intelligent creatures. Uh, they're, they learn well. I tell people who move to Florida, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to walk your dog, don't walk it down by the body of water every day at the same time, because the alligators learn behavior and they know what time of day it is and that if you walk the poodle by the edge of the pond every morning at 7 a.m that alligator that noticed you from 150 yards out in the lake will will next week be 50 yards away and the next week be 25 yards away and the next week be jumping out of the water at 7 a.m when your poodle goes by and they learn these the 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 motion of prey um, we have some great evidence in our part that they know what day of the week it is. You know, we used to feed uh, in our lagoon. We have 40 big alligators in this lagoon. Uh, most of them know their names and, and react to training when we're calling them specifically. Uh, but we used to feed uh, every day of the week on one enclosure, one side of the enclosure. But on Sundays, we'd feed on the other other side. And before anybody got a bucket of food out or before anybody set anything up on Sunday mornings, the alligators would be lined up on the other side of the enclosure. And they just knew it was it was Sunday. It was going to be a feeding day over there. That's crazy. Now, that being said, you having, you know, the opportunity of work working with so many different types of crocodilians, which one is your favorite? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that certainly changes as we're doing the work. Um, the day that baby Gariel hatched at our park, uh, it, it, it was uh, my favorite animal on the planet at the time. That was a, it, it was very impressive. You know, we've hatched out African slender snouted crocs, and surprisingly, they look like any other crocodile coming out of the egg. They don't get a long snout until they get older, uh, but the Gariel it was like a little pencil sticking out of the egg, you know, it was a very skinny snout it was, and it was just amazing. And everything we did with it was amazing. You know, it was the only one we had and we, you know, it's, we thought you've got to do everything right with it. And, and we started, you know, a few days after it hatched, started wondering, okay, well, you know, does it know how to eat? I mean, what do we do? Do we, do we put it in a, in a tank with just an inch of water and then put some fish in there and maybe it'll figure out how to catch these fish and, and we had it in a tank that was full of water, swimming around. And I and I said, well, we'll pour the fish in there and then we'll drain it down. And as the fish get nervous, they'll be wiggling around in front of them. And I started to pour this cup of fish in there. And he ate three of them before I was done pouring. You know, he, he knew exactly what to do, of course. You know, it's just innate that that's what crocodiles do. But, uh, it, you know, that was my favorite animal on the planet at the time because it was just so amazing so rare for us uh, but i really obviously i've talked a lot about chinese alligators i think they're fascinating i really am impressed with cuban crocodiles i think they're gorgeous and they are probably the easiest animal to train because they're so food motivated uh and and i heard one of your guests say it's a shame we don't have any uh, uh crocodiles that that uh, kind of survive on land, but Cuban crocodiles are a land crocodile that spends a little bit of time in the water. I mean, they jump and run and, and they, uh, they just are these impressively strong and curious and, and brilliant animals. And so they're one of my favorites for sure. So, uh, 
I don't think any of uh, me or Matt have ever even seen a Gharial before. So can you describe a little bit about what makes them such a unique species to work with? Yeah, so Gharial are bizarre. When you see one, you'll never forget it. They have they have eyes on their head that almost make them look like an amphibian. They're kind of, kind of bulging, weird eyes like a frog. They have this extremely long snout uh, with hundreds of teeth that interdigitate. So when their mouth is shut, you see all these teeth sticking out. Extremely thin, sharp teeth that are uh, meant for catching fish. And they only eat fish. Uh, you know, it's one of the few crocodilians you can, like I've, I've kept that, I've cut uh, waterfowl in with them. I've kept some small deer in with them and they just, they, they want fish and that's it. And sometimes they're even finicky about what species of fish. And so they can be a challenge sometimes, but they're, um, they're long torpedo like crocodilians. Uh, the males uh, get a large, uh, bump on their nose, kind of uh, like about the size of a softball on a really big adult male in the wild. Um, that the Indian word for pot is gara, and that's how they get their name. Is it looks they feel like it looks like a big uh, ceramic pot on the end of their nose. Yeah. Uh, and the males do a lot of the care of the young. So there are some wonderful pictures over the last decade. Uh, for some work that's being done in India uh, of these groups of it's it's several females worth of of babies that have hatched and the and this giant males that are allowing the babies to sit on their back and they're and they're spending their time protecting them mostly from the large uh, birds of prey and storks that are interested in eating the babies. Interesting. I've heard a lot about uh, maternal care in crocodilians, but. Never really heard a lot about paternal care outside of gharials before. Yeah, that's a fun thing, too. Um, our Siamese crocodile pair has raised a lot of young together. And, it, and so we let the babies exist in the enclosure with both mom and and dad. And uh, we were... We were intimidated to do that at first because there seems to be so much thought that male crocodiles are rogue and they'll just eat whatever fits in their mouth. Uh, but our, and especially in the case of the Siamese, the the male is a is a fantastic father. He probably made it more difficult for us to work around him because he wanted to be more protective and aggressive towards us. But but he 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 would forego eating food if babies were on it and he would uh he'd even forego he has a very specific display which is three jaw claps and then a bellow and i watched him one time get through one of the jaw claps but right as he was about ready to do the second one a baby swam where his mouth would have landed and he choked up he did he did a kind of a half a clap and he went into the bellow right away, which was was a was a full head slap short and and very abnormal. And then as he was bellowing, that little baby went and laid its jaw on his throat and listened, just felt the vibration of the bellowing. And so it was a very uh, impressive uh, a relationship that they were they were having. It was, it was obviously this baby was learning from dad how to do these displays. And it was, a, it was a neat experience. That's crazy. Do you see a lot of that in crocodiles? Um, like the babies learning from the adults, like with displays or really anything. That's really interesting. Yes. I think, uh, I think we don't see it much because, because frequently in zoos, we, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to risk babies in with adults or we don't have space to display mm -hmm. babies and adults. But honestly, part of the reason we're doing it with the Siamese is we, we expect that our Siamese offspring are going to go back into the wild. And, and I honestly feel like they are better crocodiles if they've been raised, first of all, in a group and second of all, by their parents. And so sometimes we, in years past, we've loaned out alligators or crocodiles to other zoos for educational programs and they've been isolated. And when we get them back, if we try to put them in a group, they don't know how to be a crocodile. You know, they don't know the social cues. They don't know to lift their snout and submission. They don't, and they'll get beat up when we try to put them in a group. But when you raise them in a group, they understand, they learn all that. They, they understand it. They, and 
And there are many things that are just innate in being a crocodile, like eating your fish. Uh, and maybe some of the displays would, would happen anyway. But I think that there is a huge benefit to them experiencing life with their parents. So there's a difference between public school crocodiles and homeschool crocodiles then. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and so much so that, that we've, we've done some tests with it. So the Siamese crocs uh, and the, even the slender snouted crocs, we've split some groups up. So we've kept, we've raised some as hatchling groups in a tub, like we, like, you know, zoos do. And we've left some with their parents and the ones with the parents grew faster and seemed healthier than the ones that were away from their parents. And part of that is the environment. There's, there's small fish in the water and there's dragonfly larvae and, and things that they can, they can supplement in addition to the pelleted food or the food, fish food we were going to feed them. And so uh, they just thrive in that environment and they're protected. You know, we worry about birds coming in. We have a huge rookery worry about birds coming and eating these babies but the parents are constantly on the watch and will leap out of the water after a bird if it's if it's bothering their young i find that really interesting because so one thing i remember learning in school is um animals that give birth to smaller number of children tend to have more parental care. So like humans only give birth one at a time, obviously, unless it's twins. So there's more parental care that goes into raising the young because there's only one, you know, as opposed to something that will lay several in a clutch, there's less parental care because there's multiple of them. So I, that's really interesting that like a cro crocodilian, you'll see uh, such a big difference in like the amount of parental care they give, despite obviously they don't have massive clutches, but they have sizable clutches. Yeah, I agree. It is unique. And and that's part of, you know, crocodiles and alligators are unique in the reptile world. They're not, you know, most turtles lay a nest and disappear. And, and in fact, sometimes they lay the nest in the crocodile nest because they know it's protected and they run off and go live their lives. And, and most snakes are that way. You know, the only snake I know that guards a nest is, is king cobras and they leave as soon as the babies hatch. Uh, so, uh, and I don't know any lizards that really take care of their young so much. So it is, uh, it's fascinating. And, and part of what makes working with them so exciting is we still got things to learn from them. They, they um, I think I have maybe the only footage in the world of a crocodile feeding its young. Uh, well, maybe there oh. may be a couple now about, about, about 25 years ago, um, our Siamese crocodile female came out of the shift cage with a big chunk of meat that we had fed her. And normally she would gobble that down, but she came out and lay down and she let all of her babies come up and eat chunks of meat off of the, off of the piece that was in her mouth. And, you know, you'd say, Oh, maybe she wasn't hungry, but the male came over and the dad tried to grab the piece from her and she yanked it away from him and then settled back down on the bank and let all the babies come back in and eat pieces again. So it was a, you know, it was very maternal uh, feeding session that uh, we just, you just don't expect from crocodiles. Do you, do you, do you think that played a role as um, in their, uh, the fact that they've survived for so long in mostly the same state? Yeah, I mean, it, certainly, you know, protective mom uh, is is a huge benefit to these babies. A baby alligator is food for everything. I mean, uh, yeah. other other unrelated alligators, but but herons and large fish and uh, raccoons and possums and snakes and you know until they're two or three feet long, they're on the menu for so many things that if they didn't have a mom or dad looking after them, uh, the, that's a, that's a huge loss for them. Have you ever seen crocodilians, um, that are, have you ever seen them help each other out? Like ones that live in groups together and whether they're, they could be related or unrelated, but have you ever seen like outside of like a mother helping out their child? Have you ever seen like just alligators helping each other out? 
Um, well, <laughs> the one thing that I have seen that I still, if I didn't see it myself, I'd have a hard time with, but we were keeping a sulcata tortoise in the African crocod African slender snatted crocodile exhibit. And they didn't want to eat it. You know, they didn't, they never tried. Uh, but the pool wasn't very well designed for a tortoise to get out of. It had kind of, kind of sl sharp slopes. And uh, a couple times I saw that tortoise get into the pool and it was bobbing around, but then uh, you could tell that it wanted to get out and it was edged at the edge of the pool and it had its front legs there kind of hooked, but its back legs don't have any webbing. So it wasn't, it wasn't just able to pull itself out. And I watched this male African slender snouted uh, crocodile push the tortoise out of the water and his mouth was never open. He wasn't trying to grab it or anything, but he, he, gave it a good shove until it was on land and then left it alone. Uh, how much do you think was that altruistic? And do you think it might've just been him being territorial and trying to get something out of his territory? <laughs> well, I don't know for sure. I mean, I, I don't, as much as I've studied these things, I, I don't know what's going on in their minds, but uh, Fair enough. you know, it, when it, it uh, he didn't, he's not a particularly, defensive crocodile about his territory certainly with other uh, all those babies and so forth that are in that enclosure uh but i don't know it was just a it's just one of those things where you say I, I, did i just actually watch that and sure yeah. enough <laughs> yeah i've been doing a lot of reading on stuff like that um just because I, I find that super interesting because you know everyone kind of has their like opinion on it and stuff and i i i personally am trying to like kind of and it's there's no way you know to know for sure but i'm personally trying to like puzzle through some of that stuff trying to figure out like exactly what all you know what's going on because it's super interesting behavior it's really intriguing especially from some groups of animals than others and so I find that stuff really interesting yeah i heard one of your speakers talking about uh reptiles and toys and and for, for the most part crocodiles <laughs> If you give them toys that they can't just destroy, like like your pit bull, um, they they do play. They you know we Maximo, uh, in when we found him in Australia had this great big uh, plastic ball. It was you know solid plastic. It wasn't something he could pop, but he he knew it wasn't food. But he would grab it and throw it and chase it and go grab it again. And and he just seemed to enjoy. Uh, pushing that thing around and maybe because he didn't have another male in his territory to push around it was it was just getting out some of that uh behavior but uh it you know there's no question that he he understood that he couldn't eat this thing and and still enjoyed doing something with it interesting, interesting. what what do you think so Okay, so I've read I read a study recently that was uh, talked about like the play circuit in human minds and how it's um, they they basically posited that humans play to as kind of um, negotiating with each other for like uh, social hierarchy and stuff like that and how to play with each other how to fit within society I guess is what they're going getting mm -hmm. at. What do you think in like um, if you have an opinion on this, what, what do you think in, in animals, especially like crocodilians, what the purpose for play is and stuff? Well, I'm, I'm sure it's not too different. You know, a group of baby crocodiles uh, will, will fight over a piece of stick and, and, and look like they're in some form of play, uh, but they're developing a hierarchy and a pecking order. And, you know, Nile crocodiles are a great example of, of, crocodiles that become uh adults and and understand their place in a pecking order you know that if there's a dead hippo they they the the uh, the adults at the top of the pecking order get to eat first and other and and there's other animals waiting in the wings that will eat when when it's their turn but there's not there's not there's not fighting there's not death roll attacking there's not this uh, argument at the at the meal table they have some respect for each other and they understand their position in the group and so i think all the way back to 
to hatchling that play does kind of bring you into understanding those things you understand what it, how much strength it takes to do something and 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 whether that affects the the babies or the siblings that you're living with and that and i think all of those things are a learning process for sure it's really interesting so you mentioned you do some uh breeding work with non-crocodilians specifically uh some several uh endangered birds uh can you go a little bit into detail about some of that uh sure we um we just we just have some some fascinating groups so the the um cape griffin vultures we got from uh, a rehabber in south africa all of our cape griffin adults uh, were injured in the wild in some way they were either hit by a car or poisoned by a farmer or um had a some injury that affected their wings and so none of the ones we have can fly so we actually have them in a outdoor exhibit but there's no top on the exhibit and then uh, we've set them up for success for reproduction with the right nesting material and um, we just happen to be uh, in the right latitude i guess in the fact that they like to nest when it gets colder so about another well probably another two weeks or three weeks they'll start building nests uh, and so we've just been successful in raising young and those so far are young that are going to other zoos so we can increase the uh, the way that, you know, the, the group and, and get breeding going in other facilities. There are other facilities that have the species, but so far uh, I don't think any of them have been able to breed them. Uh, I think it was San Diego Zoo last year. They have a they have a pair of Cape Griffin vultures, but they never produce fertile eggs. So they came and got one of our eggs and flew it back to San Diego and put it under their female who builds a beautiful nest. She just doesn't lay good eggs for some reason. And so they raise that chick as their own. And, and so they, they're learning things about being parents that will be helpful for the population in the future. Um, so, it's you know, that's it goes back to this idea of of zoos working together and, and accomplishing all that we can as, as partners rather than just trying to outdo each other. Uh, so the zoo is, is, you know, as I said, known for crocodilians. We also display a pretty good sized herd of Galapagos tortoises and uh, uh, pretty impressive King Cobra and Komodo dragons. And uh, we try to mix it up a bit, make sure that there's something for everybody. We have a, nice big pair of cassowary which quite frankly scare me more than any of the uh, crocodiles i work with so <laughs> we uh we uh, we have those on display and so far i haven't reproduced them there our male and female are seem not quite compatible he knows what to do with eggs he and and how to how to uh take care of a nest but he doesn't understand how to create the eggs in the first place so he's he's uh he's a little bit behind his times i guess are there um conservation efforts being done with the galapagos tortoises um or are they just more of a zoo feature uh no absolutely so we have two distinct herds and and two of the rarest subspecies that there are so i think um oh. i think there's probably there's probably uh, maybe one of our herds maybe every one of that subspecies that we know of in the United States and the other one uh, is not quite that rare but we've um, we've been kind of hit or miss sometimes we get good years and we're we've got some nice fertile eggs and we've raised up you know we have galops in all different sizes from softball size to um, you know, almost, almost suitcase size to uh, bigger, but um, they're uh, not every year successful for us, and we're still learning a lot with those guys. But yeah, we're we're doing our best to to do the right thing by them conservationally. What, if if you don't mind, could you go into like some detail about that? Because like a lot of um, stuff, at least I've heard, I haven't heard a ton of stuff on Galap Galapagos tortoise uh, conservation, but a lot of stuff I do hear seems pretty like dismal so kind of if you don't mind going into specifics on like 
conservation with, with efforts with those and how well it's going and just kind of the challenges you face? Well, so for us, it's just all we're trying to do is get captive born offspring from known subspecies. So for years, you know, Galapagos tortoises were captured off the Galapagos. They were put on boats. They're, they're stored in the, the hull of the ship so that if the, if the sailors ran out of meat, they could just slaughter a tortoise and eat it. And they didn't care where it came from. Yeah. And some, some of those animals eventually made it over here to zoos. Uh, in fact, a couple of ours were brought to our zoo in the 1930s and they were already adults. Uh, so the, you know, of course they're long lived, but zoos didn't, zoos who collected these and, and displayed them didn't give any thought to the fact that there could be different species or subspecies from the different islands. And so there's been a lot of, uh, mutts, uh, created, if you will, zoos that, that didn't know any better. All of us didn't know any better at the time. We're breeding Galapagos tortoises and just putting whoever seemed to be compatible to, together. But now, over the last 20 years, there's been a lot of genetic work, and we've sussed out which tortoises are from which islands, which of those islands uh, are, are, are rare, you know, which of the tortoises are, for, are rare in their population for the different islands. And so now we're going back to try to make uh, purebred uh, animals that that. Uh, could maybe eventually go back to the islands, but that's not our main concern right now. Right, our main concern is is learning how to create more tortoises uh, that aren't mutts and that will uh, increase the population. Hmm. Do you find because they're an island species? Do you find that makes a difference as far as either keeping them or conservation efforts, or does that not really make a difference? Uh. <laughs> It was hard on Disney when I, I kept the glops on Disney property on that island that I worked on. And they, they're tough. They bulldoze their way through barriers and fences, and sometimes they'd just be floating around in Bay Lake. And they float like a Volkswagen. You'd think they'd be too heavy, but they, they really float. And so some of those, those you know, cruisers that are bringing Disney guests to the Magic Kingdom would drive by and, and notice a tortoise floating out there. Uh, so they were, they're not easy to contain all the time, but uh, other than that, I, and, and seeing them float out there made you realize why they could be on every island in the Galapagos. They, they can just float from one island to the other. They don't swim in any one direction real well, but they certainly can go with the currents. Uh, so I, I don't think that it makes our job a whole lot more difficult, but, uh, but it's, uh, it's why there are so many subspecies and why there is a lot of work to be kind of redone. We, you know, for, for years, zoos thought, oh, we're having success breeding tortoises. That's all that matters. But now we're realizing, well, we've got to, got to breed the right tortoises and have, have the right uh, offspring to go back to the correct island. And all of that is just uh, genetically more sophisticated than, than any of us imagined. Well, that's so. What's so important about conservation uh, research and everything that goes into it is finding out all these, you know, everything that we don't know because we don't know a lot, you know, and especially with you know Galapagos tortoises or really any animal, just finding the best way of going about uh, helping them. And everything changes when when the technology changes. You know, we didn't have genetics when we started all this, and yeah. now we do. Uh, even the taxonomy, you know, for years we were saying this thing we call a tomistoma or false gharial was really more of a crocodile than a gharial. It just taxonomically it seems to, to, to be more crocodile-like. But genetically it is very much it falls into the gharial family. And so uh, as, we, as we are keeping these animals the genetics may be teaching us something and that may teach us a little bit about why it's harder to breed Tomistoma than some of the other crocodile species. Um, there's, uh, there's clearly something going on with, um, with fertility in both Gharial and Tomistoma. And that's why those of us that have had success breeding either one of them only get one or two or three babies instead of whole clutches of babies. Um, they're just, uh, there's a fertility issue in these males. And I suspect that it's probably 
means that we need more than one male. We need there to be some combat and some testosterone levels rising and things like that. But, but that's all things we have to learn. And, and, and as the technology gets better, we'll figure it out. Well, I think unless you have another question, Nate, that's a pretty good place to stop there. I don't have any other questions. Cool. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks for the time, guys. I appreciate the, the offer. Yeah, yeah it was really for, good, uh, yeah, thanks really for, good talk. Yeah, thanks for coming on. All right. Talk to you guys later.